Well, good morning. Man, you guys, you guys sounded great this morning. Uh, can we just thank our band for, for leading us so well this morning? Uh, we pulled a magic trick on you this morning, and you didn't know. I don't mean like the witchcraft kind of magic. I mean like the, the kind of magic that's just make-believe. Uh, but we played a magic trick on you. You saw six humans uh, on stage this morning, but we played a trick. There was actually seven on stage, uh, and that is because we are delighted to celebrate with uh, pastors Daniel and Anna as they are with child. So that's fun. Yay, babies. We love babies here. Um, and so uh, we're excited to, to celebrate with them uh, and for them as they kind of jump into this next part of their family's life. Fun stuff. I did ask permission to say that, just so you know. I didn't just, like, spoil it. I'm not into the spoilers. That's why me and Pastor Jason and my friend Mark always go to the Marvel movies on the Thursday evening so we don't get any spoilers by Friday. Uh, we are in week three of a series called, I'll be the judge of that, because let's be honest, we're all Christians and we like to judge people. No, that's not what it's about. What we're doing is actually taking uh, the, the entire summer to go through the book of Judges and look at these different characters that are scattered all throughout it. Because Judges, let's be honest, Judges is not one of the books of the Bible that you're at home doing your Bible study in. Uh, it's not one of those like super interesting books that you're just like, man, I really want to read about this family tree. Uh, it's not one of those. Um, but there are some very unique characters uh, in the book of Judges, and we are going to look at one of those today. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, because there's blood and guts and potty humor. I am not kidding. Uh, the book of Judges really is all about uh, this vicious cycle that the people of Israel seem to always find themselves in. Um, they would be like God's successful people, and then they would mess up and the enemies would take over for an extended period of time, and then they would crawl back to God saying, help us, help us. Uh, and they would give these prayers of supplication, uh, and then he would uh, give them salvation through these people called judges. Like, don't picture like an actual judge. It's like these kind of like um, military leaders in a sense. Uh, and then they would have success, and then they would mess up again. And it was this vicious cycle of sin, and supplication, and salvation. And then it would occur over and over again. That's where we get all of these judges. And so turn to Judges chapter 3, if you've got your Bible, whether it's digital or analog. Uh, we want to dig into this. This is going to be a really interesting one, because uh, Judges 3, this story of um, a guy named Ehud, this one is a bit bizarre. It's a little bit weird. It really does have blood and guts and potty humor. Um, and so that's why it's my favorite of all of the Bible stories. Some say Daniel in the lion's den. Some say Noah's Ark. Me, Ehud, and King Eglon. Why? Because potty humor. I am a 39-year-old child. Love this story. I do. Not because of the things that I just mentioned, but because of the significance of the story 
and one word, one Hebrew word that I'm going to teach you in a little bit that changes the entire outlook of the story. So, let's begin. This is a fair warning. This uh, sermon is going to be a little bit PG this morning. So if your kids aren't in kids' ministry, you should send them. Because this one gets a little bloody, a little gory, and a little bit gross. And if you don't want to hear toilet jokes when you get home, send them away now. Three seconds. Three, two, one. Let's begin. Judges 3, starting at verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies, and then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. Everybody say, raised up a rescuer. That's right. So this is that vicious cycle that I was talking about and that Pastor Jason talked about a few weeks ago. It's this vicious cycle of sin and supplication and salvation and then sin and supplication. It's this vicious cycle that happens all throughout. And that's right here in these first few verses. God raises up these seemingly ordinary people uh, to become the heroes of the faith for a time being. And so here we see that Israel, they, they mess up, and then King Eglon takes over for 18 years, and then they beg God, like, help us. And so he gives them a rescuer, which is a form of salvation at this time. And give them a rescuer. Let's move on to verse 15. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. So, just a word of the wives, when you introduce somebody that you know, don't introduce them by maybe their physical features or their faults. Hello, this is my son. He's gotten a bit fat. Hello, this is my daughter. You know, she is not very athletic. Hello, this is my wife. She loves to rack up credit card debt. Hello, this is my husband. He's lazy and emotionally unavailable for our children. This is not, this is not a case study for my own family. Okay, stop. <laughs> so don't introduce people this way. However, for some reason, God's word does that here. And when you see something like that, you have to kind of wonder why? Why do I care that the king is obese? Why do I care that this man is left-handed? And why do I care what tribe he is, he's from? I don't know. So when you have questions like that, it's important for you to dig a little deeper 
into what God's word might have to say about those things. So sometimes there are things that change the whole perspective of the, the story. And so we have to wonder why God, through his word, introduces us to Ehud and Eglon that way. And so here's the two things that we need to know about Ehud. One is that he was a left-handed man. Great. Two is that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. So let's look at those two things. That's all we know about him. And somehow that is supposed to be important to us. So let's look at that. How many of you here are left-handed? Raise your hand. I want to see. You're left-handed, but you're using your right hand? That does not count. Uh, they say about 10% of people uh, in the world are left-handed. So it's not like it's super unique. My son is left-handed. My mom is left-handed. Um, but it's one of those things that about 10% of the world are. Um, you can... Uh, like left-handed stuff, you can buy left-handed stuff. Some of the greatest guitar players of all time were left-handed. Kurt Cobain, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Paul McCartney from the Beatles, all lefties. Um, Ned Flanders even had the leftorium in the Simpsons. Uh, and they sold left-handed products. You can even buy, in real life, uh, left-handed scissors. You can get like uh, left-handed tools. Of course, there's left-handed golf clubs. And a few years ago, you can even look this up, Burger King sold a left-handed Whopper. This is a true story. Google it. Not now, later. I'm, t I'm talking, not you. So Google it later. It's a true story. A left-handed Whopper. So it's not, like it's, it's not like it's abnormal. Why would God go through the lengths to tell us he's left-handed? And this is why. Uh, I know there's probably not many Hebrew scholars. I am not one. But sometimes when you see something that's odd, you, sometimes you want to look at some of the Hebrew words used to explain things. And so when you look up the word left-handed in the Hebrew Bible, this word called iter, I-T-T-E-R, comes up. And what the word iter means is hindered or impaired. So you begin to get a sense that he's not just part of the 10% who's left-handed. He's left-handed because he has a disability of some sort. He's left-handed because he's impaired or hindered on his body. We don't know why. Maybe it was something he was born with. Maybe it was something that happened uh, later on in life. We don't know. But we know that there was something wrong with his right side that caused him to be left-handed through this one word, iter, which means hindered or impaired. So somehow Ehud was handicapped on his right side, which caused him to do most things with his left. So that's the first thing that we know about him. The second is this, is that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Is there anyone here with the name Benjamin or Ben? Raise your hand. Is there any? Any? No, no, I don't. that's okay. If usually, there's usually one. Does anyone know what the word, the, the name Benjamin means? Oh, past, Pastor Eric at back, he's talking during the sermon. He knows. What does it mean, Pastor Eric? Right hand. Benjamin means, the tribe of Benjamin means son of my right hand. So let's put those things together for a sec. Ehud is a left-handed guy in a tribe of righties. So 
when we know this thing, we know that he is the outcast. He is somebody who looks, uh, who, whose tribe looks down on him. He is the outcast. He is the odd man out. He is the lefty full of a tribe of righties. And who do they send to send the tribute to the enemy king of Moab? They send Ehud. Why? It's because anyone who, well, first of all, they're enablers because a tribute money would have been a big cart of food, so they're sending that to the fat guy. So they're enablers. We know that. So they send Ehud, the outcast, the lefty in a tribe of righties. He's the guy they send to take the tribute money to the enemy king because they know that his life could be in danger and because they think he's expendable because of whatever disability or hindrance or impairment he may have had, they send him to do the dirty work. This changes the entirety of the story a little bit because of what happens next and what God does in him and through him. This is verse 18, the second half. It says, Ehud came to Eglon and he said, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet. And he sent them all out of the room, which is like basically really bad Canadian airport security. They didn't frisk him. They didn't check him. They didn't check his baggage. They didn't see if there's anything under his clothing. They just like, well, they saw his impairment and decided this guy's not a threat. What guards, what king guards do that? So he sent them out of the room and Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And so as King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand and he pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh and he plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger because gross, he didn't pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. I love the King, the king James Version says, and out came the dirt. <laughs> it's true. Who says the King James isn't great anymore? Come on. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room, and he escaped down the latrine. Through like the sewers, as if this couldn't get any grosser, he escapes through the sewer system. This is good stuff. This is Game of Thrones right here. This is what is happening at the moment. So it's gross. He had stabbed the king and his blood and his guts and his excrement fall to the floor. But we have to look past this picture here, okay? Uh, that, it's, it's funny because God's word has this funny way of drawing you to one thing is actually asking you to look beyond that to find out what the main thing is. And so we actually have to look beyond like the blood and the guts of the story, okay? Because God is painting a picture, a very red and brown picture, but he's painting a picture of what God can do through somebody despite their hindrance or their impairment or their disability. This is huge. One word changes the entire outlook of this story. One Hebrew word. 
So when we look beyond this gruesome image, we see what God can accomplish through us, despite the stuff in our lives. In other words, this is what I want you to walk away with today. God raises up what man puts down. God raises up what man puts down. This man's tribe put him down. They sent him to do the dirty work. They saw him as an expendable person. But God raises up what man puts down. And when he gets into the throne room, the guards look at him and go, this guy's not a threat. It's fine if he talks to the king. He's, this guy isn't going to do anything. But God raises up what man puts down. And the king even invites him closer to the throne and to his presence. And he says, uh, you can whisper whatever you need to tell me. The message that you have for me, whisper in my ear. Because the king puts him down, but God raises up what man puts down. See, God uses who we are and what we have now in order to accomplish the things that he wants us to. See, sometimes we think, man, as soon as I get to this place, I'll be ready. As soon as I have these finances, I'll go and do that thing that God is asking me to do. As soon as I feel better, then I'll go do that thing. As soon as I feel equipped, then I will go do that thing that God is asking me to do. And God says, I don't work that way. God raises up what man puts down. We've heard it said probably a billion times before, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. The resources you need to do the thing God is asking you to do usually comes after he asks you to do it. Because this is faith. Okay, that's the serious stuff. Now, let's get to the hilarious stuff of this story. This is where God brings a little bit of potty humor into the story. And you think like, God wouldn't do that through his word. Absolutely, yes, he would. Let's read about it now. Verse 24. After Ehud was gone down the latrine, right? He went through the sewers. The king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought that the king might be using the bathroom. So they waited. So they're like, crept up to the bathroom doors, like the three stooges. This is what I picture in my mind. And they're like, putting their ear to the door. Like, is, is he in there? And they waited. And they waited, and they waited. And so it's like, well, you, you, you knock on the door. No, I'm not going to knock on the door. You knock on the door. Well, he's probably just using the bathroom. Just see how he's doing. No, you, you do it. Well, maybe he's out of toilet paper. Maybe we need to go get him some. Well, you, you knock on the door. Like, there's this hilarious thing that happens that we don't see. And it says, but when the king didn't come out for a long delay, they're like, he's probably reading the newspaper. He's on his phone paying Candy Crush. Let's just leave him alone. Because when the king came out, when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned. And so they got a key. Can you imagine, like, all right, let's go in there. <laughs> You've got your, like, boss, who is, like, probably this tyrant of a king, who they believe is sitting on the john. Um, and they're like, well, you go get the key. We'll open the door. We'll see what's going on. Like, you don't do that, right? So they got a key. And when they opened the doors, of course, they found their master dead on the floor. This is hilarity, okay? This is, this is meant to be funny. This is God's word taking something serious and contrasting it with something really funny. 
It says, when Ehud arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, this is verse 27, he sounded a call to arms, and then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, get this, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. And so they followed Ehud, and Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years which is contrasted to the 18 years that Moab conquered. See, not only does God give victory to the people whom he has called and whom he raises up, notice that Ehud doesn't take any of the credit. Even though his tribe has made him an outcast, even though his, his tribe saw him as the expendable guy who has some kind of disability or impairment on his body, he doesn't say, guys, look what I did. He doesn't say, like, I set us up for a win. Let's go. What does he say in verse 28? He says, the Lord has given you victory. So when we answer the call, whatever it is in our lives that God is calling us to, God gives victory through you, not for you. So when we see things happen in our lives, when we accomplish maybe what it is that God is asking us to do, or we step into whatever it is that he's asked us to do, God gives victory through you, not for you. It's not your glory. It's not your honor. It's not your worship that is being built up. It is for the honor and glory of God. When you are obedient to whatever the call is in your life, you still don't get the credit. God does. Why? Because Jesus becomes glorified. So when God uses us despite our affliction or our disability or hurdles or obstacles in our lives, the victory is his not ours. God raises up what man puts down, and we give credit and honor and glory to God, and victory comes to the people around us. And we see similar things happen in Jesus' ministry as well. If you've got your Bible and you want to turn to John chapter 9, you may do so. It's also going to be on the back. But we see a similar story without the blood and guts and toilet humor. Uh, we, have, we see this in Jesus' own ministry. This is John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. It says, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? So it's interesting that the disciples don't ask this guy his name, they don't ask about his family or how he's doing. They simply see his impairment. They see that he's blind. And before they even have a conversation with him, all they see is blindness. All they see is disability. All they see is hindrance and an obstacle in this man's life. And of course, Jesus, who is God incarnate, raises up what man puts down. And he says this in verse 3. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God, the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us 
by the one who sent us. See, God gets the victory, not us. He's saying these things happen in our lives because they are a part of who we are and they're a part of the call that God has on our lives. No matter what the thing is in your own life, it's probably going to be different than someone else's. But God gets the victory, and he gives victory through you, not for you. Jesus even says it, how it happens so that the power of God could be seen in you. Verse 4, we must quickly carry out the task assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here, I am the light of the world. And that he spit on the ground, he made mud with the saliva, gross, and spread the mud over the man, blind man's eyes. And he told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. God raises up what man puts down. So this story becomes a big deal in the community. It causes all this commotion. And even the people who have seen this man all their lives, they knew that he was blind from birth. They knew that he was the guy who was begging outside in this corner every day. They knew that he was the guy who, who that some of them probably even helped him cross the street sometimes. They knew him. And so this commotion comes up, it bubbles up, and then of course all the religious leaders and the Pharisees begin to question this man. They bring him into court basically, and question after question, they're like, how did this happen? Who did this? Why are you such a sinner? Why are you this? Why are you that? And he's like, look, all I know is that I was blind, and some dude helped me. He put some mud on my eyes, and it smelled weird, but I can see now. And they're like, this guy is just telling. So they bring in his parents, and they ask them some questions. And then they ask people in the community the same questions. They're like, we don't know what's going on. And so they basically throw him out of the temple. And this is where the story continues in John 9, starting at verse 35. When Jesus had heard what happened, he found the man and he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? Because, yes, I want to know that guy. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you now. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. He didn't get excited for his new found sight. He, he didn't go and tell like his, his, 12, his own 12 best friends. He didn't make a big deal of it. He first thing he did was worship Jesus. And that's because God gives victory through you, not for you. He recognized that this is the man, this is the miracle worker, this is the guy who can change my perspective on life. This is the guy I want to follow. I want to worship him. So when we meet Jesus again and again and again, he continues to show us ways that he raises the people up that some of us sometimes even put down. See, in both of these stories, in this story of Ehud and this healed blind man, God takes something that we all of us typically see as a detriment, and he says, you know what, I can work with that. Not only can I work with that, I want to work with that. See, the kingdom economy is vastly different than our own. Sometimes we see the way that things make sense, the way that things should work, the way that it's going to be, 
But kingdom economy doesn't work that way. It takes something that looks odd and impossible and dark and bleak, and he massages it, and he blesses it, and he multiplies it into something that God can use in such a great way that even our own minds don't comprehend. God raises up what man puts down. See, when we see financial hurdles, God sees blessing. When we see anxiety and stress, God sees peace and rest. When we see mental health challenges, God sees a way to transform the renewal of our minds. When we see grief, he sees new mercies. When we see physical disability, God sees special capability. When he sees the neurodivergent, we see perspective resurgence. When we see marriages on the rocks, he sees restoration. When we see family tensions, he sees reconciliation. When we see a mess, he sees a message. When we see graves, he sees gardens. And yet we look at people and we see their disability. We see their hindrance. We see the obstacle that they have. We see the funk that their life is in. And we say, they're probably not ready to do what God's asking them to do. I don't believe that. I believe that God is calling us where we are now in our stuff, in the latrine with Ehud. That's where he's calling us. He doesn't want to wait until you get out. He doesn't want to wait until you've escaped. He he doesn't want to wait until you've climbed out of it or you feel better. He doesn't want to wait until you've, you've seen something miraculous happen with your body. He wants to use who you are, what you have, and where you've been, and he wants to use that to do his work and his will in your life. But we're terrified because we think, what will man think? What will my neighbor think? What will my coworker think? What will my spouse think? What will my kids think? What will my parents think? But God wants to use who you are right here, right now, not where you hope to be in a year, to change your life and the lives of those around you. But it's hard. I get it. But God raises up what man puts down. He's ready to use you despite your thing. And I've got things, okay? I've got things that I need to sidestep in order to follow in God's will for my life. And so he wants to raise up rescuers like you and me in this church, in this community. He needs rescuers. He needs people with disabilities ready to use what their life has given them for the glory of God. He needs people who are in the deepest pit. He needs people to speak life into those who may be feeling down in the pit with you. God gives us this hilarious story, not because it's entertaining and it looks like something that came out of the Lord of the Rings. He uses this story to direct our attention to the kind of person that he wants to use, which is imperfect. And yet some of us are just kind of waiting around until things change, our situation changes, our financial things change, before we can go do that thing that God is asking us to do. 
And so I want to pray for, I want to pray for two kinds of people here today. Can I get you guys to stand? You've been sitting long enough listening to me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just close your eyes for a minute and maybe bow your head. Just don't be looking around for a moment. I want to pray for two groups of people. The first group is this. There is, there are people in this room, myself included, who feel like life just quite hasn't added up yet. Things haven't lined up yet to do the thing that God is calling me to do. There are people in this room who think that their situation is far too gone to be able to accomplish what God has. So let me, I want to pray for those people. And if that's you, no one's looking around, don't worry. No one's going to say, oh, I wonder what situation they're going through. If that's you, I want, to put your hand, I want you to put your hand up because we want to pray for you. Put your hand up if you feel like you're in a spot where you don't feel like you can accomplish what God is asking you to do because of something. Yeah, that's what I thought. Jesus, we just ask that your spirit would fill those who have shot their hands up. Lefties or righties, I don't care. But you see every heart. You don't look at hands, you see hearts that are saying, I've got something that I'm trying to get through. And you're saying, I can use that. It's God, in Jesus' name, we just ask that you would empower these people to look beyond themselves, look beyond their, uh, the people around them, and understand that God raises up what man puts down. That you want to raise each one of these people up to be a rescuer in their family, in their community, into their, their, their workplace, wherever they find themselves. God, you want to raise them up to be rescuers. And in Jesus' name, we pray that you would empower them and encourage them as such. Put your hand down, y'all. I want to pray for a second group of people. There are probably people here who think that their life has dealt them a really crappy hand of cards. And sometimes that might be the case. And you may be thinking, you know what? I've got too much stuff in my life. I've done too many things. I've broken too many relationships. I've burnt way too many bridges that God would ever love me and want to use me for anything. I call lies. That is not the truth. The truth is Jesus wants to use you and your life the way it is right now with the story that you already have. He wants to use your mess and use it for his message. And there are people who probably even haven't given their lives to Jesus yet because they feel like they're not worthy. Well, guess what? Neither am I, and I do this for a living. And so with all the eyes closed, just our, kind of our staff and our board are going to be looking around. If you, for the first time, you want, maybe you want to give your life to Jesus, all you need to do is recognize that he is God Almighty, that he came to save you, that he loves you and wants to do miraculous and crazy things with you and your life and all the baggage that comes with it. And so if there's anyone here who for the first time wants to give their life to Jesus, I'm gonna ask that you stick your hand up. And don't worry, no one's looking around. We're not gonna embarrass you, but we just want an opportunity to pray with you, to talk with you and find out where it is that God wants you next. And so just shoot your hand up if that's you. God, again, you don't really look at hands, you look at hearts. 
you see the groanings in our own hearts, in our own spirits, in our own minds that Mia read earlier from Romans 8. God, sometimes there are words that we can't even express, but your spirit does that for us. And so in Jesus' name, we just ask that you would hear the groanings of our hearts. If there is anyone here who wants to give their life to you, God, speak to them, move in their lives, fill them up with so much of yourself that it overflows out of their head and they can't help but tell somebody. God, we know that you take a look around and when man sees a whole bunch of graves, a whole bunch of tombstones, God, you see gardens. And some of the gardens are just have small buds and some of them are flourishing with flowers. But God, you see every grave. And you see its future of a beautiful garden. Let's worship amongst those words this morning.